the Bible. You might not know this, but it's actually the best-selling book of all time. Not only that, but listen, the Bible is also the best-selling book of the year each and every year. That's amazing. As a matter of fact, there are more than 20 million Bibles sold each year in the United States alone. With that being the case, well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there's at least one Bible in 85% of the homes here in the United States. And according to the research conducted by Lifeway, the average household here in America has at least four Bibles. And then when we factor in the Bible apps that people download to their cell phones, well, there should be no doubt that the Bible is a book that is readily available to every American. At the same time, most Americans are biblically illiterate. The reason why? Well, it's because very few of us spend real time studying the scriptures. The proof of my point can be found in a recent poll conducted by the American Bible Society. And according to this ABS survey, a meager 16% of Americans read the Bible at least four times a week. It's amazing. The same report also reveals that only 10% of Americans engage in daily Bible reading. And listen, this is four percentage points down from the pre-pandemic amount of 14%. And according to Scott McConnell, who serves as the executive director at Lifeway Research, most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they rarely pick it up. Even among worship attendees, less than half read the Bible daily. The only time most Americans hear from the Bible is when someone else is reading it. Wow. Now, in order to grasp this discrepancy between Bible ownership in America and Bible illiteracy in America, it's important to understand that most Americans just don't really believe that the Bible is the word of God. That's really what it boils down to. Most Americans don't really believe that the Bible is the word of God. And to prove my point, I want to consider the results of a recent Gallup poll, which helps us to see that only 20% of Americans now say that the Bible is the literal word of God. That's right. Only 20% of Americans believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. As we consider this new record low, Well, it's no wonder that so few are actually spending time studying the scriptures. Think about it. If the Bible is not the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, then why spend any time time reading it? If the Bible is not the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, then it's just another religious book written by men who are obviously attempting to control the masses. And if the Bible is just another religious book written by men who are attempting to control the masses, then there's no reason for anyone to think that this religious writing deserves our daily attention. Conversely, if the Bible is the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, well, then it only stands to reason that this book is then the objective basis for developing a proper worldview which corresponds to reality. And if the Bible is the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, well, then it only makes sense. 
it's most reasonable for us to spend time every day studying the scriptures. And with that being the case, I want to begin by asking, is the Bible the divinely inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God? Well, in order to answer this question, I want to turn our attention to something that Paul writes, and we find Paul today assuring his audience about the supreme authority of God's holy word. And as we take the time to consider Paul's point of view regarding the word of God, we're also going to examine the evidence, which will help us to see, first of all, that the Bible is divinely inspired. We'll also see that the Bible is definitively inerrant, and thirdly and finally, we'll see that the Bible is doctrinally infallible. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's here where we find Paul assuring his audience about the supernatural origins of our scriptures. And as you make your way to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the canon of scripture that we call the Bible, it actually contains 66 books which were written over a period of 1,500 years. These books were also written by 40 different authors who came from a variety of backgrounds, which includes both kings and commoners, not to mention a few fishermen, one physician. And let's not forget about the former Pharisee who penned 14 epistles, including the one that we're studying this morning. With this as the focus, I want to turn our attention now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me there at verse 13, here Paul writes, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's taking a moment to glorify God, and he's glorifying God for the way that the recipients of this epistle had received the truth of God's word. And just to be clear, well, I should take a moment to remind you that Paul penned this epistle prior to the completion and canonization of the New Testament. He's actually helping to write the New Testament as he penned these very words. Therefore, when Paul refers to the word of God, he was technically talking about the 39 books that we find in the Old Testament. And as we consider the way that he refers to those texts as the word of God, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that Paul was a man who believed in the divine inspiration of the Old Testament. To prove my point, let's take another look there at verse 13. Here again, Paul declares, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to consider the way in which the original recipients of this epistle received the word of God. We should first notice that they received the word of God as they heard the teachings presented by Paul. That word heard, well, it's translated from a Greek word which refers to the sense of hearing. What this means is that the Christians at the church in Thessalonica had become believers after they heard the word of God. Paul would teach and they would say, I heard that. They heard it with their ears. And as they heard it, they embraced the instructions that Paul presented from the Old Testament scriptures. That's right. Paul was teaching the Old Testament scriptures and, and helping them to understand how those scriptures have been fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that being the case, it seems to me here that Paul not only believed in the divine inspiration of the Old Testament that he was teaching, but he also believed in the divine inspiration of the instructions that we now find in the New Testament. To prove my point, it'll help you to know that one-third of the New Testament is actually the Old Testament. Yeah, one-third of the New Testament is actually from the Old Testament. 33% of the New Testament is actually a quotation that comes from the Old Testament. Now, before you start screaming about plagiarism, you should know that the New Testament authors were actually helping us to understand how the promises and the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's here in our text today where we now find a biblical basis for believing in the divine inspiration of both the Old and the New Testaments. To prove my point, let's take yet another look here at verse 13. Uh, here again, Paul declares, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And I want to stop right there. I want to consider the way that the believers there in Thessalonica received the instructions presented by Paul. According to Paul, they didn't just receive his teachings as the ideas that originate within the mind of a, a, of a finite man. As Paul presented them with instruction from the Old Testament and explained how these things have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, they received these teachings as the divinely inspired word of God. And while their belief doesn't prove that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, this verse does help us to see that the first century saints, they actually believed in the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Now, to better understand what, the point that I'm trying to make here, listen, when I refer to the divine inspiration of God's word, uh, you know, we, we should consider the way that Paul describes this. In order to grasp, what, what do we mean when we say divine inspiration? Well, I think that Paul puts it plainly in his second letter to a pastor named Timothy. So with this as the focus, hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you're making your way to the third chapter of 2 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that when Paul refers to the scriptures as the word of God, he was simultaneously assuring us that the Bible is a creation of divine inspiration. But I like the way that Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 14. Here Paul instructs Timothy by declaring, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging Pastor Timothy to realize that the holy scriptures that we find in the Bible, they weren't just the words of finite men. No, instead, the holy scriptures that we find in the Bible, they were written by men who were being divinely inspired by an infinite God. Just to be clear, It'll help you to know that the phrase that's translated, given by inspiration of God, it's found there in verse 16. That phrase is translated from one Greek word, which actually speaks of the very breath of God. 
I like the way that the scholars who created the English Standard Version render verse 16. Here's how they put it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. From this, we can see that Paul truly believed that the content of the Bible was breathed out by God. Think about that for a moment. The Bible is the very breath of God. And I'd like to assure you this morning that God does not have bad breath. Some of us do, trust me, but God does not. And as we consider this belief in the divine inspiration of the Bible, that the Bible is the very breath of God, well, it's no wonder that conservative Christian pastors like myself, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. And you might be thinking, who's he, what's he? Well, let me put it simply. I believe that when it comes to the original autographs of each book, Every word and every part of the Bible was divinely guided by the spirit of the living God. Now, when it comes to the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word, I'm sure we all realize that uh, believing this doesn't make it so. Believing this doesn't make it so. A person can believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible, but that doesn't prove that the Bible is divinely inspired. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, is there any evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible? And with this question in mind, I want to consider something that the Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle. If you would continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of 2 Peter, I just want to spend some time considering the evidence uh, for divine inspiration, which is based upon the concept of biblical continuity. Biblical continuity. In order to grasp the evidence that I'm referring to, I should take a moment to point out that, uh, again, that, that the Bible includes 66 different books. So we, we see it as one book, the Bible. But it's actually 66 books. It's written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years by men with, as I've already pointed out, men with many different backgrounds. Not only that, but the books of the Bible were, were also written on three different continents using three different languages. And let's not forget about the variety of literary genres, which include poetry, prophecy, parables, as well as precepts. And yet, despite all of these differences, the canon of Scripture continues to uh, reveal one continuous communication, which helps us to understand God's perfect plan for redeeming sinful man through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Savior. I just want to think about that for a moment. How difficult would it be to convince 40 different authors here in the 21st century to collaborate on a book that has a continuous, consistent revelation of God's plan of redemption. If we were to take 40 different authors here in America in the same year and say, hey, collaborate on, on a book, write, write, write you know, 66 di- different books and let's put them all together, would we end up with a continuous story throughout? The answer is probably not. And listen, when you factor in the time frame that it took for all 66 books to be completed and canonized, well, there's no doubt in my mind that the divine inspiration of the Bible is the best explanation for biblical continuity. You see, the Bible, though it's written by all these different guys over the course of 1,500 years from all these different places and backgrounds, 
it still has one continuous revelation. It, it, it tells us about the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption of man. And, and it's a continuous revelation that all makes sense together. In order to further make my case, we must not fail to factor in all of the fulfilled prophecies that we find throughout both the Old and New Testaments. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that a prophecy is not the same as a prediction. See, people present predictions. We think we know a little bit about, you know, the nature of man and the way things work. And so we make predictive, you know, uh, presentations about what we think is going to happen in the future. And that's all, that's all fine and well. Some are better than others at this, like Nostradamus. I think, what, he was about 50%, right? Good on him. But we're not talking about predictions. We're talking about prophecies. A prophecy is actually God's way of revealing the future in advance. God's not predicting the future. He's letting us know what's going to happen in the future. Why? Because he already sees it. And according to the research of one theologian named J. Barton Payne, over one-fourth of the Bible is prophetic in nature. As a matter of fact, 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature, which is equivalent to more than one in four Bible verses. And not only that, but as we consider the amazing accuracy of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled from the Bible, listen, as we factor in the statistical probabilities of those prophecies actually coming to pass, we have to come to the conclusion that the Bible has indeed been inspired by the mind of an infinite being who is able to see the end from the beginning. I think that the Apostle Paul sums it up best here in 2 Peter chapter 1 as he, as he considered how the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of so many prophecies from the Old Testament. And it's here in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, where Peter declares, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter, he's appealing to the prophecies of the Bible as powerful proof that the Bible was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And more specifically, he's pointing to the fulfillment of prophecy through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking at the prophecies from the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus fulfilled in his first advent. And as we consider the way that Christ Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies that point to the first advent of the Messiah, Peter rejoiced in knowing that there's now excellent evidence that helps us to see that the Bible is in fact the divinely inspired word of God. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down the things that we find in the scriptures. And prophecy is the perfect proof that this is true. And while it's true that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, it's also true that the Bible is the definitively inerrant word of God. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's assuring his audience about the inerrancy of God's word. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in verse 13. Notice with me again where he declares, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which is also effectively working in you who believe. 
Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice the word truth there. Just to be clear, Paul was using a Greek word which can also be rendered most certainly, undoubtedly, or definitively. The same Greek word was also used to describe that which corresponds to reality. You see, that which is true is that which corresponds to the way things really are. There is reality, and then there's our ideas about things, and when our ideas about things line up with reality, then we're thinking true thoughts. So, you know, what this means then is that when Paul informs his audience that the Bible is the word of God, well, he's saying that it's, it's really the word of God. When he says the Bible's the word of God, He's saying that this claim about the word of God being found in the Bible, well, it corresponds with reality. It's not just the words of men. In reality, it's the word of God, most certainly. Well, just to be clear about the inerrancy of our sacred scriptures, it'll help you to know that the word inerrancy speaks of that which is incapable of being wrong. Inerrancy speaks of that which is incapable of being wrong. Inerrancy is also defined as that which is free from error. And when it comes to the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to know that there are many who are quick to point out that the Bibles we have today are filled with errors, which scholars call textual variants. That's a nice way of saying errors. Textual variants. For example, I want to consider the claim of one skeptical scholar named Bart Ehrman who declared this, and I quote, scholars differ significantly significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 or more. We do not know for sure because despite impressive developments in computer technology, no one has yet been able to count them all. Oh boy, we've got big problems here. Maybe we should just go home now. Listen, as we consider the claims of these skeptical scholars like Bart Ehrman, you know, these scholars who are quick to insist that the Bible is just filled with errors, well, we should take a moment to acknowledge the fact that they do have a point. They do have a point. As a matter of fact, the textual variants that we find in our modern translations, these are actually found in the ancient manuscripts. We find them in our modern translations because we find them in the ancient manuscripts from which, uh, you know, come, uh, uh, are, which are the basis for our modern translations. And as we consider all of the copyist errors that we find in the ancient manuscripts of the scriptures, it'll help you to know that we actually find three main types of errors, which include errors of the eye, errors of the pen, and errors of speech. Now, the errors of the eye, this is caused when the copyist confuses letters in a word or, or, or uses the wrong ending of a word, these sorts of things. Then the errors of the pen uh, typically occur when a copyist carelessly fails to transfer text to the new copy, and so their eyes are getting tired maybe, or, or, and they, they just fail to take this section here and put it in the new manuscript. Then there are errors of speech, which uh, would occur when the scribe was confused by the dictation. So in this case, someone's dictating the words and the scribe gets confused and, and copies the wrong thing. With all this in mind, I want to take a moment to consider the sort of textual variants that we actually find then in the ancient manuscripts. These variants include uh, spelling differences. One manuscript spells this word this way and the other differently. There's order of word differences. Like in one manuscript it says Christ Jesus and in that one it says Jesus Christ. 
There's also uh, errors of omission, things that have been left out or things that have been added in. And while it's true that there are upwards of 400,000 variants found in the New Testament manuscripts, well, it's also true that we have so many manuscripts, thousands and thousands of, of manuscripts that scholars are actually able to reproduce the original New Testament to a high degree of certainty, despite all of these textual variants. I like the way that Greg Kokel summed it up when he declared this. He says, what can we conclude from the evidence? Virtually all of the 400,000 differences in the New Testament documents, spelling errors, inverted words, non-viable variants, and the like are completely inconsequential to the task of reconstructing the original. Incredible. Now, I realize that all of these variants still appear to create a challenge for those like myself who believe in the uh, inerrancy of the Bible. And so if you're wondering why I still believe in biblical inerrancy, well, it'll help you to know that when we refer to biblical inerrancy, we're actually referring to the original autographs. We're not talking about the copies. We're not talking about the manuscripts, the thousands and thousands of manuscripts where we find these little variants. No, when we talk about biblical inerrancy, we're talking about the autographs, the, the, the actual work which was divinely inspired by God and therefore free from error. We're talking about the authors who wrote the book, and when they penned the original autograph, it was completely free of error. And listen, this is not only true for the books of the Old Testament, but this is also true for the New Testament books as well. Now, to further make my case, I want to consider the promise that the Lord Jesus presented to his disciples. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 14. As you make your way to the 14th chapter of John's gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to address the arguments of those who insist that, well, there's no reason for us to believe in the inerrancy of the original autographs. And the reason why is because they were written by men and men are prone to making mistakes. Maybe if they were written by women, we could believe it. But men are prone to mistakes, so we can't really believe in the inerrancy of the original autographs. Well... As we consider this argument, I want to take a moment to point out that, you know, it is possible for humans to do things without error. It is. Like if I were to ask you for your name right now, I'm guessing that you could tell me your name without making a mistake. Maybe, maybe some of you guys would struggle. But, uh, but I think for the most part, you could without error tell me your name, right? There, there's one small example. Also, there are times when students make perfect scores on tests. Now, I never experienced that. But there are, there are some people who can ace a test. You know, there's some people who have even aced the SAT. Yeah, we call them cheaters. But so, (laughs) but there are some people who have aced the SAT. There are times when gamers are able to clear a level without any mistakes at all. And it's because their mom didn't interrupt them in the basement as they were playing. Listen, we're all prone to making mistakes. It's true, but this doesn't mean that it's impossible to produce a book that is free from error. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that the men who wrote the Bible weren't relying on their own understanding. And they weren't relying on their own memories. No, they were receiving divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, let's consider a promise that Jesus presents here in John chapter 14. If you would look with me there at verse 26. 
Here the Lord declares, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Wow. The Lord Jesus was helping his disciples to to realize that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent and the Holy Spirit would provide them with help by giving them perfect recall as he reminded them of everything that Jesus said. That's right, the Holy Spirit was sent to provide the disciples with the ability to remember the instructions of our Savior. They weren't just relying on their own memories. The Holy Spirit was there to help them. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit was also sent to provide them with even more instructions, which we find in the New Testament. To prove my point, let's flip forward to John chapter 16. I want you to look with me here at John chapter 16, where Jesus presents this specific promise. And if you would look with me here in John 16, verse 12, here the Lord Jesus declares, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus assuring his apostles about the heavenly help that they would eventually receive as the spirit of truth showed up to provide them with divine guidance. Now, as we consider how the spirit of truth was sent to guide them into all truth, well, then we can be certain that he also empowered them to produce a perfect, inerrant, trustworthy, truthful book, which, is, uh, which these books now have been canonized in the definitively inerrant New Testament. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, if it's true that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, and if it's true that the Bible is the definitively inerrant word of God, well, then it's also true that the Bible is the doctrinally infallible word of God. With this as our focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because here we find Paul, he's assuring his audience about the doctrinal infallibility of God's word. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Thessalonians 2. You would look with me one more time at verse 13. Here Paul declares, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, here in the final section of this verse, we find Paul, he's referring to the word of God as being effective. He says it it effectively works in the lives of those who believe. If you believe in the word of God, then it becomes effective in how it, it impacts our lives. And just to be clear, the phrase that's translated effectively works, it's translated from the Greek word energio, and energio is the basis for our English word energy. The original Greek word was used of that which is energy or, or, or powerful. It, it can be rendered powerful. And, and not only that, but the same Greek word refers to the specific sort of power which is able to effectively energize those who are being empowered. And so it's a very specific kind of power that is the correct kind of power for that which is being empowered. Uh, for example, you know, if you uh, charge an electric car, 
with the electricity that comes from sweet, sweet fossil fuels. Well, then that car is being empowered by those fossil fuels to be able to make it to the next charging station and where you'll have to wait for three hours to charge it up again. Yeah, but, but listen, the, the electricity is the exact kind of power that this electric car needs, you know, so that I can pretend to be green. But, uh, but listen, hey, I'll buy an electric car when I can afford one. I, I think they're awesome. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're being charged with fossil fuels. And it's the kind of electricity that's necessary to empower the vehicle. Well, it's in a similar yet spiritual way that we need the sort of power that can energize us spiritually. We need spiritual power, and the Bible provides us with that sort of power. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where he declares, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints of, and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Christian, listen. The word of God is living. It's, it's alive and it's powerful. It's, it's got the power we need. And it, it enables us to be able to see all of the sinful thoughts and immoral intents that we still have hidden within our hearts. Think about it. You know, the, the truth of God's word is like this powerful light that exposes all of the deceptive desires that we still struggle with. And you might not know this, but, but we have deceptive desires hidden in our hearts that we don't, we don't even know about yet. And yet the word of God can help us to see it. Not only that, but the word of God is like a spiritual scalpel that the Lord uses to cut out the carnal cancer from our souls. And and with that being the case, those who want to become more like Jesus should spend more time studying the scriptures because the scriptures provide us with the doctrinal instructions that we need so that we can begin to become more like Christ. To prove my point, let's take another look at the statement that Paul makes in in his second epistle uh, to Pastor Timothy. So if you would, once again, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Timothy, well, I just want to take a moment to address those who like to pick and choose the biblical instructions that they're willing to embrace and apply. Uh, for example, you know, there are those who love what the Bible says about the free gift of salvation, which is received by faith. Uh, you know, salvation by faith alone, they love it. Can't get enough of it. That they're ready to apply that to their life all day long. But then they come across a verse that, you know, uh, addresses the need to serve. They come across a verse that, that addresses, you know, the, uh, the, the importance of Christians, you know, becoming servants of one another. Now, now, that, that's for somebody else. That verse is for somebody else. Or they come across a verse that addresses the sins that they love to engage in. And that's when they start questioning the infallibility of the Bible, you know. Well, I mean, uh, can we really say that that's for this day and age, you know? I mean, uh, that was written so long ago. Can we really say that that still applies to us today? And they start questioning the infallibility of God's word. Why? Because they don't like what it says to them. They love the saved by grace. They don't really want to hear about the stop sinning. Nope, don't want to hear that. So that's got to be for another time and for another people, right? Right? Well, actually, no. 
the Bible is doctrinally infallible. And in order to understand what I mean by this, the word infallible in this context, it refers to the belief that what the Bible says regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is holy, useful, and true for the entire church age. In other words, when we say the Bible is doctrinally infallible, what we're really saying is that all of the instructions that the Lord has given to us are true and trustworthy and ought to be applied to our lives. And while there are many who have no problem rejecting the biblical doctrines that they don't agree with, Paul encouraged us to realize that the entire Bible is doctrinally infallible. Let's consider how he puts it here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you would look with me once again at verse 16... Here Paul declares, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as we take another look at these verses, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which here in verse 16 is rendered all, it literally means all. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. It means all. Or the way I would render it is the whole enchilada. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. All of the scripture is given by inspiration of God, which is to say that it is a work of divine inspiration. The entire Bible in its original format is entirely inerrant, definitively inerrant, And therefore, the entire Bible contains all of the infallible doctrines which enable us to be perfected and prepared for every good work. Now listen, this is not to suggest that all of the doctrines in the Bible are meant for us. So don't don't get me wrong on this. I don't believe that all of the doctrines which are infallible are meant for Christians living in the church age. For example... The Israelites were instructed to offer daily sacrifices at the temple both morning and evening. Does that apply to us today? Absolutely not. Why? Well, because Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. When we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the sacrificial system. Therefore, the doctrine that directed the Hebrews to go and offer daily sacrifices, uh, that doctrine, which was true for them at that time, no longer applies to us. How about the doctrine uh, that uh, provided them with dietary restrictions? It placed a prohibition on pork and shrimp. That was true for them. Is it true for us? Thankfully, no. Because shrimp Diablo is one of the best tasting things ever created. Give me all the shrimp wrapped in pork you can make, and, uh, and I'll eat it. You see, the... the the dietary restriction that the Lord presented to Hebrews living in the old covenant times, it no longer applies to us. And so while those doctrines were infallibly true, it doesn't mean that they're true for us by way of uh, putting it into practice. With that being the case, you might be wondering, well, how do we know the difference? How can we know which biblical doctrines apply to Christians living in the church age and which don't? The answer is simply this. The church age doctrines are defined in the New Testament epistles. Now, just to be clear, there are 21 epistles in the New Testament, beginning with Romans, ending with Jude. Between those two books and everything in between, we find the doctrines that are defined for the church age. 
It's here in the epistles where we find Paul, James, Peter, John, and Jude presenting us with the infallible doctrines that help us to understand how born-again believers should behave in the church age. And knowing that the epistles were written for this very purpose, I encourage every Christian to spend time studying the epistles so that we can grasp God's plan for the church age. Now, I get it. uh, There's a lot of times when new believers are excited to study the Bible, and what do they do? They turn to Genesis, and they start studying Genesis, and then Exodus. And by the time they get to Leviticus, they don't even know what's going on. Do I need to start sacrificing animals? What do we do? Listen, slow down. I get it. It's natural for us to want to read a book from the beginning. But listen, if you really want to know what, uh, what we need to uh, apply to our lives in the church age, read and study the epistles. Read the epistles. Get to know the doctrines for the church age. And then you, you can make better sense of dietary restrictions and sacrifices and all these other sorts of things. So Christian, if you really want to get a handle on the Christian faith, study the epistles first. And then from there, you can understand the rest of Scripture. At the same time, I also believe that all Scripture was written for our benefits, including the events recorded in the Old Testament, no matter what Andy Stanley says. So with that, I think that Paul sums it up best in 1 Corinthians 10. There he declares, now all these things happen. He's speaking of the Old Testament things. All these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, the Old Testament was not, uh, it, it was actually inspired of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but those historic accounts were written so that we might learn from their examples, both bad and good. Yeah, we ought to be learning from the admonitions that we find in the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament epistles. And while there are many pastors who avoid the Old Testament altogether, I'm not one of those guys. I love the Old Testament, but it has to be understood through the doctrines that are defined in the epistles first. But I truly believe what Paul wrote when he assured us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Christian, listen. The believer who wants to be perfected and prepared for every good work, we must first realize that the Lord has provided us with all the doctrines, all the teachings that we need so that we can become more like Jesus. And to further grasp my point, let's consider the way that James put this in his epistle. Uh, If you would, let's turn to uh, to James chapter 1. You see, it's here in the first chapter of James where we find him. James is helping his audience to, to see the connection between the infallible doctrines of God's word and the effective power by which we are perfected and prepared for every good work. I want to consider how James puts it here in James chapter 1. You would look with me there beginning at verse 21. Here James declares, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, 
goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Christian, listen, those who study God's word and begin to do the work that we're encouraged to do, these are the Christians who are blessed. But those who study God's word and then fail to apply the doctrines of God's word to their lives, they're actually engaging in self-deception. It's self-deception. If you read through the New Testament epistles, you see how the Christian should live in the church age, and then you begin to make excuses for why that doesn't apply to you. You are deceiving yourself. And it's sad to say that this is something that that we all struggle with in, in one way or another. Now, I would point out that I believe we're all struggling with some sort of habitual sin because we all struggle to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt that we're all struggling with some level of habitual sin. And if right now you're saying, well, I don't, well, then you're struggling with the habitual sin of lying to yourself. We all struggle with habitual sins. And it's for this reason that Paul tells us to walk in the spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That is good instruction for all of us. But listen, I'm not trying to address those who are struggling with sin and, 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 and they're broken over it and they pray about it and they're seeking the Lord about it. And that should be every single one of us as we continue to try to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm referring to those who read the scriptures, they see it, they don't like what it says, and they begin to explain it away. These are those who are quick to question every biblical doctrine that they disagree with. And if this sounds like your approach to the scriptures, please trust me when I I tell you that if you have a difference of opinion with God's word, guess who's wrong? It's not God. There's only one left. It's you. If you read the Bible and you see in in the New Testament epistles where, where there's a doctrine that we shouldn't do this or that we ought to do that, and you start making arguments against that, God's not wrong. So it's got to be us. If we have a difference of opinion with God, we are the ones who are wrong. With that being the case, I encourage you to remember the promise that Jesus made in John chapter 8. There he declares, if, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in the word of God, And you are the disciples of Christ. And as we abide in his word, we discover the truth, which then sets us free from our habitual sins. If you're struggling with habitual sin, as most of us probably are, then the best thing that we can do is to continue abiding in God's word, which will set us free. You see, as we abide in the word of God, we begin to discover the infallible doctrines that, according to Paul, effectively work in those who doubt it. No. It effectively works in those who question it. Nope. It effectively works in in those who dismiss it. Nope. It effectively works in those who believe it. 
You see, it's by faith that we're sanctified. And the effective power that energizes us to gain the victory over habitual sin happens when we look at the word of God, we see what it says, we feel the conviction of it, we embrace it and say, yes, Lord, help me. Help me to become more like you. With that being the case, I encourage every believer to abide in the word of God through daily Bible study, spending time every day studying the infallible doctrines that we find in the Bible. And if you don't have time to study the Bible every single day, my question for you is this, what is happening in your life that you're putting something else as, uh, as more important than studying the word of God? Well, I don't have time you know, to study the Bible but I can spend an hour putting on makeup before I go to work. Oh, maybe get rid of the makeup. Well, I, I, I don't have time to study the Bible every day, but I do have time to check up on my sports team. I got to know what happened with the sports ball unit, with the, with the players and the doing the things that are so important, right? Can't give that up. I don't have time to read the Bible. Really? We need to adjust our priorities to put the word of God on a higher level than a lot of the things that we waste our time doing. I don't have time to read the Bible. But hold on, let me me watch all of these YouTube videos that I wasted three hours today. Yeah. We need to adjust our priorities. But this will only happen if we look at the Bible and say, that's the word of God. This is the most important information on the planet today. There is not more important information on the planet today than the Bible. And with that, I want to wrap up our study by taking a moment to remind you that there is excellent evidence and really good reason for us to believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired definitively inerrant and doctrinally infallible word of God. And with all that being the case, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Bible then is the absolute authority on every subject that is covered from cover to cover. Whether we're talking about creation or the plan of salvation or the judicial consequence of everlasting condemnation The Bible is right. And where our opinions are different, we would do well to repent and adjust our beliefs to line up with the scriptures so that we can have a worldview that corresponds with the the way things really are. If you want to develop a worldview that actually corresponds with reality, this begins with the Bible. And the reason why is because the Bible is the word of God. Let's pray. 